Oh, everybody that's got up here has said good morning. It must be the local culture. My name is Bruce. For those who don't know me, I seem to be fairly well known in this church. I seem to get around a bit. I'm normally at the 8.30 or 6.30 services and I'm hearing some ringing, but I'm going to trust the sound engineer. So I'll keep talking and hope that he can resolve the issue. To thank you to Warren for the reading. To he did tell me he was expecting something special out of that reading and he'll be disappointed. Coming to this passage, just a bit of a story to start us off. In the late 1970s, a book titled Where is God When It Hurts was published and has remained in print ever since. The basic question is, why does God allow bad things to happen? This is a question that's asked every day in churches, by individuals. It's been asked throughout history and will continue to be asked. It's one of those issues that we need to deal with as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does God allow bad things to happen? On December 14th, 2012, an unhinged young man entered a school in Connecticut with a firearm. 21st graders and six staff were killed. And people asked, where was God? Philip Yancey, who wrote the book, Where is God When It Hurts, was asked to go and speak at a local church where he met people involved. After that visit, he and his publisher agreed to make the book available as a, a free download for a limited time. The publisher issued one press release. Nothing else, just one press release. Yancey posted the link on his Facebook page. Philip Yancey and the publisher expected maybe 200, perhaps 300, thousand at the most to avail themselves of the offer. In the first few days, more than 100,000 people downloaded the book. The question was so relevant. Where is God when it hurts? That question remains for us in our individual lives. Where is God when things go horribly wrong. We see examples of suffering in scripture. We readily think of Job. And the story of Job is an old one. Job's story is well before Moses. We know the story of Stephen, stoned to death for his proclamation of Jesus. We see times of great suffering as we look at the history of the church. We acknowledge suffering in the context of people that we know, even today. 
there are people who are suffering for being Christian. And uh, just the other day, I was looking at some of the details of a man from an African country, persecuted, his youngest brother executed, because this man's a Christian, and the country he comes from claims to be 80% Christian. We have to ask the question, where is God when things go horribly wrong? At a personal level, we can be confronted by circumstances that are overwhelming. We can be confronted by illness, by personal loss, by disability, by so many other things. How do we cope? Well, we need to turn to the Word of God. It would be easy to go directly to Romans 5, verses 3 to 4. And it's a great little passage. We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Great one. But I want to stay focused on 1 Corinthians chapter 12 because this reveals Paul's personal experience. It would be terribly easy just to look at this in a purely academic way. And in 2013, last year, Timothy Keller did produce a book on suffering which just is an academic treatise. And I find that a little disappointing. What he's had to say is great, but I find it disappointing because it seems so unfair to those who are feeling the pain and the frustration and the suffering at this moment. Here, Paul relates both blessing and bane. We would view Paul as someone walking closely with God. His experience of God would naturally be different from that of others. But we need to recognise the fact that everyone's experience of God is different. Warren was looking forward to a great exposition of the third heaven. Sorry, that's not what this passage is really about. But for those who need it, the simplest explanation I've ever heard, straight to the point, the first heaven is the air we breathe. The second heaven is the skies we see above us, the stars and all that. The third heaven, as it says in the passage, is paradise. It's the place where God dwells. If you needed something on the third heaven, that's as much as I'm giving you today. Paul is someone like all of us who has some rare and radiant experiences which cannot be explained in human language. Sometimes God just touches us in such an amazing way. The danger in relating those experiences are twofold. Firstly, 
that we will succumb to spiritual pride. I've had this experience. And secondly, that we can be exalted above any reasonable measure. The first thing, I am so good. And the second one, he is so good. That's the dangers of relating those experiences. And that's why I'm sure Paul didn't give that example clearly. But he gave that example to increase the value of the next section of the passage. The number and the type of revelations given to Paul could easily have isolated him from the people he was to minister to. But God brought an equalizing factor or allowed an equalizing factor into his life. Paul must descend from the heights of spiritual ecstasy into the valley of reality if he is to be God's messenger to humanity. And so God gave him a thorn. Today, some of us will refer to it also as a cross to be born. Paul's description of both the heavenly experience and of the thorn are deliberately vague. He wants us to focus on the principle and not on the nature of the specifics. We don't need to know the dates, the times, the places and the names. We need to focus on the lessons that are here for us. What this passage gives is a representative case of how God can work in our lives. And a knowledge of Paul's specific problem would be a distraction. Some have guessed. Some have guessed at ophthalmia. Others have said it was malaria. Some have suggested migraine. And I know how painful that can be, not that I suffer it. Some have suggested epilepsy. Some have suggested a speech impediment. Others have suggested an unimpressive physical experience. And some cynic wits have suggested it might have even been a wife. Whatever the thorn was, it hurt, it humiliated, and it restricted him. And initially, he saw it as a limiting handicap. Later, he saw it as a heavenly advantage. So how did Paul handle it? Firstly, he prayed. This heartfelt, earnest prayer that God would take it away. Surely God would do that. Surely God would do that. But no. Paul finds himself faced with the problem of unanswered prayer and it was as I was looking at uh, just writing out all these notes the other day, the, the fellow at the computer is actually working through the notes so he knows where the different slides come in. He's got the whole lot there in front of him. But I was working through this and it just struck me as I was writing it out in full 
Paul says, I prayed three times. Pretty earnest. I mean, there are some things I pray time and time and time again. But Paul hears the sense of frustration. I prayed three times. It's as if his relationship with God is so good and so close that he can mention a thing once and it's dealt with. And I've mentioned it three times. I've pleaded three times and God hasn't answered. Was he asking for the right thing? We ask for things that we might think are right. We ask for strength that we might achieve. But God makes us weak that we might obey. We ask for health that we may do greater things. God gives us infirmity that we may do things better. We ask for power that we may win the praise of men. We all want to be significant. We are given weakness that we may feel our need of God. And I know there are times that God has humbled me because I've needed it. We ask for all things that we may enjoy life. God gives us life that we may enjoy all things. As Paul recounts this, as he looks at it, as he reviews it, from his own experience, Paul sees the thorn as a divine gift. If you look at the latter part of verse 7, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. But he sees it as coming from God. As with Job, Satan appears to have been allowed to try Paul. This may have been a a measure of Satan, but Paul still views it as a gift of God, given, not imposed. And we need to recognize again and again that God's love is long-sighted. The spiritual welfare and growth of his children is far more important than their physical comfort. He does not always spare present pain if it will produce eternal profit. Our personal thorns may take any number of forms. It may be a physical limitation. It frustrates me that I cannot do things that I used to be able to do 20 years ago. There are others in this church who know that experience well. The thorn may be a bodily deformity. It may be a temperamental weakness. And heaven forbid it may be a brother or sister who drives you to absolute distraction. Whatever your thorn is. The main point for us is whether or not we have recognised our particular thorn as a gift from God, as Paul did in verse 8. He tried to thrust the thorn away, this thing that would keep him close to God, that would make him more useful from God's point of view. We can try to do the same thing. 
But we need to discern the divine gift. Paul also recognised the divine purpose in his ongoing trial in order to keep me to in order to keep me from becoming conceited. So what is God saying to us in our circumstances? We need to stop and ask that question. Are we actually listening for what God has to say? I heard it stated just the other day, we should be careful what we ask of God. He may give us exactly what we ask for and receive so much less than he'd actually intended to give us. Are we listening to what God has to say? Is God doing something totally unexpected in our lives? Paul prayed fervently that the problem would be removed. And he kept praying that way until he saw God's purpose in it. At this point, his attitude changed. We need to ask the question, what is God's purpose for us in this? What is there for me to learn? And I'm focusing very much on the personal with this, not on the corporate. But I do know that as a church, there are lessons that we need to stop and say, Lord, what are you teaching us? And thirdly, Paul sees a divine compensation. In verse 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is is made perfect in weakness. This is not a promise that Paul has to plead for, that he has to say, Lord, give me some of that. This is something that is a genuine gift from which he can freely draw. God's grace is not only adequate but it is available for every time of need. At one level, we don't need to ask for it. We have to recognize that God's grace is freely available to us. It has been given and it only remains for us to receive and to use it. Grace sufficient in a mistaken marriage. Grace sufficient in unsatisfactory employment, grace sufficient in an unsympathetic home, grace sufficient in physical weakness and pain, grace sufficient in crushing grief. Our disabilities are blessings in disguise if they cause us to lay hold on God's sufficient grace. And I deliberately did this particular slide as a tag that we can grab onto. This is the thing that we must, must grab hold of out of this passage. Our disabilities are blessings in disguise if. 
they cause us to lay hold on God's sufficient grace. If we're not prepared to rely on God and to draw on his resources, then we're going nowhere. We will be confronted by the philosophy of the world, the world that tells us that what cannot be cured must be endured. Suck it up. Get on with it. Have another bowl of concrete and toughen up. That's the philosophy of the world. Paul demonstrates in this passage that what can't be cured can be appreciated and can be turned to be used for God's glory. In verse 10, he says, That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The experience of the thorn delivered Paul from the peril of spiritual pride. And it made a new source of spiritual power available to him. And that new source of spiritual power far exceeded anything of that experience of the third heaven. It eclipsed it. God's power did not dispel his weakness. God's power was clearly shown in his weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. Our disabilities are blessings in disguise if they cause us to lay hold on God's sufficient grace. God bless us all.